I think a lot of times the dominant narrative doesn't teach us to read for power analysis and that's on purpose because that's dangerous to the status quo. And when we start doing a power analysis, then we can start to like resist and, and push back. My name is Jonah. I'm a pastor, activist, community organizer, and follower of Jesus. I love the Bible, but I've been told it doesn't love me back. Enter the peacock. An ancient symbol of abundance, the peacock is more than beautiful. It serves as a guard animal around the world because it eats poisonous spiders and snakes. How does it survive? Peacocks can break down poison, get to the good stuff, and emerge fed and strengthened. Some say this is how the peacock gets its beautiful iridescent feathers. Join me and my guests as we read the Bible in the spirit of the peacock. Re-encounter nourishing scriptures that have been poisoned by hate and ignorance. Break down toxic theology and get to the good stuff. Emerge fed and strengthened with a beautiful, iridescent faith. Welcome to Jonah and the Peacock, a podcast about poison, healing, and the Bible. Hey everybody, Jonah here, and what you're about to hear is a conversation between me and Reverend L. Dowd. She's a Lutheran pastor, activist, and author of the new book, Baptized in Tear Gas, From White Moderate to Abolitionist. Elle and I have crossed paths a few times as Midwestern radical leftist Christian activists, but it was the first time we got to have a really in-depth conversation, and it was such a joy. I got to hear about some of the highlights of her book, um, which is out now, and you should all check it out. And she got to tell a little bit about her own story, her identity, the ways that she has variously fit in and not fit in in church, and how that uh, experience she had of both insider and outsider informed her willingness to do a perpetual power analysis, to identify when she was an oppressor and when she was oppressed. And that's really shaped her faith. It shaped her reading of scripture too, and her love of the Bible really comes across in our conversation. I really connected with that, that she's passionate about this, and she sees connections to the radical movements of the streets in the scriptures. At one point, she talks about how uh, just because you're new to the party doesn't mean that the party is new. Just because she was new to abolition and conversations of radicalism doesn't mean that that was new to Christianity. And in fact, she got to tap into these ongoing and sometimes ancient conversations about what true liberation is. I really, really loved uh, having this uh, this discussion about abolition in particular. She talks about how policing is not broken, prisons are not broken, the carceral system is working exactly as it was made to be, and uh, what that means for us as Christians and how we ought to respond to that. She has a real freedom with her relationship to scripture because she trusts it and she believes that God trusts her. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation and and it, it challenges you perhaps to think about the ways that you, that each of us are called to move from our spaces of moderation into the true radical vision of the kingdom. some point I want to ask you about your relationship to radicalization and church but you actually um you you start in in the book talking about um your context and who you are which is really resonant with what we're trying to do here in this space of identifying you know how is our identity as readers of the scripture uh shaping changing um and influencing the way that we read scripture itself uh, so you identified yourself first and foremost as, you know, suburban, Iowa, white kid, um, and that kind of Midwestern identity. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that shaped you uh, growing up? Yeah, I think it's one of those things, you know, a uh, feature of white supremacy is universalizing, white people universalizing our experiences. And so I think that is one of the reasons that the work that this podcast is doing is so important and why I try to like, I don't know, sort of like disclose in the beginning, because 
it's really important to know like these parts of us and, and how they form us and to like sort of name the edges and limit that. But yeah, I grew up in a white suburb of Des Moines, Iowa. And so yes, the Midwest. And again, growing up, I didn't realize that the Midwest had such a strong culture and cultural identity, particularly like white upper Midwest, but it really does. And uh, that very much shaped and formed me. A lot of the vibe of the white upper Midwestern culture is a very much like police niceness. We don't talk about that here. Kind of um, conflict avoidant, uh, averse to tension sort of thing, because again, tension and conflict don't feel very nice. And so I actually grew growing up in that uh, culture, even though I allegedly, you know, was like, I, I should have been fluent in it, but even for me, it wasn't working. So I have the, I have the feeling that maybe there's a lot of people who also grew up in these contexts that even maybe if you can speak the language of like, you know, white Midwestern suburban people, that maybe there are ways that you have also felt like the limitations. And for me, uh, part of the conflict there was that my family, we went, especially when I was younger, we were like a blue collar family. My dad was a mechanic, very working class, but we lived in a suburb where a lot of folks were middle class and upper middle class. And so growing up, I wasn't totally sure why I felt different. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? I was also queer. I also had experienced some trauma, some stuff like that. But part of it was like, I was unable to perform the middle classness that was the standard of like conversation and dress uh, because I didn't actually know it was a thing, right? Like I didn't have a concept that there were these cultural ideas and that there were these cultural standards. And so uh, in many ways, I internalized both the messages of how we're supposed to be nice and conflict avoidant. And in other ways, I was constantly feeling inferior because my communication style wasn't translating to that for those people. So it's this, um, this weird thing, right? Like a dual sort of formation where on the one hand, these values are like imprinted on you. And then on the other hand, there's also this feeling of, of inferiority for not being able to like measure up to these standards. And I think that's probably part of the reason that I came to be able to critique some of that was that like, it wasn't working for me. Like I already, I was failing like, you know, at it. So yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because I think that you're right that it doesn't work. It doesn't work for most of us. Like there's this tension in your book one of the phrases that you talk about or that you use is is seeing whiteness as the norm, right? And and just sort of like that whitewashing and there are actually so many different uh avenues of uh of identity dominance in our culture that that layer on top of that. Um, you know, I often end up going back to Audre Lorde and the idea of the mythical norm, um, mm -hmm. as being, I forget how exactly she phrased it, but you know, uh, white male heterosexual, um, upper middle class. Um, and, and, and so having all of those different layers on, it's actually a, a minority of people that fit comfortably into that. And then the rest of the world is just performing our best approximation, um, yes. to get by, uh, and and so you know even being able to to participate in some of those things um, more easily that tension that that creates just communicates that that we should all be striving for something that's really ill fitting. Um, yeah. Were you ever able to to find places that felt more natural or communities where you you kind of discovered like oh. oh you know, that, that relief of I'm at home here, something mm -hmm. about this is actually closer to my reality instead of performing this norm for the people around me. Yeah. You know, I think that anytime that people butt up against these like mythical norms that none of us fit into, we sort of make these choices and they're not really two choices, right? It's not a binary. It's like a spectrum and we're all navigating, but it's like, how much do we assimilate and then, and maybe gain some access or power and how much do we resist but resistance can often be dangerous on various levels depending on what the resistance is and who we are and um so i think 
there's a few places that I felt like, oh, yes, I, f- I feel like home here. But the first place that really stuck out to me when you were talking and asking the question was in St. Louis, because in St. Louis, the activist community there is just very, very queer. And um, not everyone, obviously, but like a, there's a core definite group of folks that, that are LGBTQIA+. And I had so much internalized biphobia growing up, and I had never really been part of queer community. I never really felt like, oh, am I gay enough? Am I whatever? Am I just making this up? Is bisexuality even real? Like, I I don't know. And it was uh, activists in St. Louis who were like, nope, you're one of us. You count. We claim you. And that was very healing for me. And uh, a really big part of, there's many reasons that I have so much appreciation and gratitude and fondness for the people there, but, but that is one big part of it. Yeah, I, I resonate with that a lot, actually. And the, I don't know what it is about the streets. I think it's just the, the requirement of solidarity that's forged in the streets, um, forces us to see one another more more in our own true identity. I, I don't know. I, cause I, I felt a similar freedom around gender expression when I was, um, a community organizer. And even that was like very, very limited and very, um, there were a lot of things I still had to perform, but, uh, but even creating space for a wider range of emotional expression. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think in the streets I was allowed to be angry about, yes. um, the injustice of the world and my anger, my grief, um, didn't have to be neatly separated from the art and the beauty that were also necessary to fuel the movements of the street. And I think that there's, there's a, a capacity in activist movements for holding a fullness that we really like to, to cut down and compartmentalize in other spaces. I'm curious about your experience in, the church, because I know that you grew up in the ELCA, right? Yes, I did grow up in an ELCA church. So what what was it like there? Were, were there pockets where you could be yourself? Were there pockets where you felt you really had to perform? So the ELCA as a denomination, like, you know, many mainline denominations, there is a lot of various expressions of how the ELCA can be, right? There's like some, even today, there's some like, you know, rad leftist type ELCA spots. And then there's some very, very conservative, like, you know, rivaling James Dobson kind of spots. And then there's everything sort of in between. And the church that I grew up in, uh, like many Midwestern churches had sort of, at least at that time, you know, in the nineties and two thousands had really kind of adopted a lot of evangelical culture, white evangelical culture. And so although we were like ELCA, Lutheran, mainline Protestant, the rhetoric, and especially the Christian formation for young people was very, very evangelical. And so I always felt so beloved by God. I never questioned that. But I actually spent a lot of time feeling on the outside of the church, feeling unheard, being chastised, Mm -hmm. being told I was too much. I remember uh, being in a space where I'm trying not to like totally name and and dime out everyone here because I think a lot of these people actually have had their own particular evolutions and some of these communities have too. But um, there was one particular space that was a, a, a Lutheran space where we were doing skits and I wanted to play the voice of God, you know, as like a teen and I was not allowed to because I was a woman or there was a lot of pushback about, could we use like a, a Bible translation that said, you know, brothers and sisters instead of just mm. brothers. And there was pushback there. And so the ELCA church that I grew up in is no longer ELCA, actually. In 2009, the ELCA voted on a human sexuality statement. It it is called Gift and Trust. And in that statement, the ELCA sort of named four different approved ways to think of sexual ethics as far as LGBTQI plus stuff, gender and sexuality. And any of these four ways 
is still to this day acceptable in the ELCA all the way from like major condemnation to major affirmation. But even just allowing individual congregations the possibility of ordaining LGBTQIA plus clergy and leaders or doing LGBTQIA plus people's weddings, even just having that possibility, my home congregation left the ELCA. So they are no longer ELCA. And when I pushed back against that, because I was a huge pain in the ass, and I was this kind of high school student and young adult that would like for fun, go on the internet and like Google, what does the ELCA believe about this? And like read all the social statements and like read theology for fun and the Bible for fun. Like I was very nerdy about that stuff. So when the church leadership was pushing for us to leave the ELCA and I pushed back hard and publicly, I was sort of very politely asked you know, not to come back because it would be, they said we would be more comfortable and you would probably be more comfortable at the Episcopal Mm -hmm. church down the road. And that was supposed to be a diss because the ELCA and the Episcopal church have been in a full communion partnership since 2001, but a lot of, you know, more conservative Lutherans didn't like that we were doing that. And so that was supposed to be like a diss, like you're not one of us, you don't belong here. So I did not really feel accepted by the church or by parachurch organizations or ministries or spaces, but I was like so in love with the Bible and so in love with like God. It sounds so cheesy when I say that, but like I never questioned that and I just kept being there. In many ways, I didn't know that there were more progressive spaces that were available. Um, and so I just, I kept wanting to be at church because church is the place you talked about God. So I just, I guess, kept, kept showing up. And then finally, when I moved to California, I did find a more progressive Christian space. And the more and more I was exposed to that, then yes, I started to find places that I was like, yeah, the church, like the church, this church is the, is the place for me or this faith community or these, this gathering of believers, I do feel like I belong here. Well, and you talk about that love, uh, love for God, love for the scriptures. There are so many people who have similar experiences of being pushed out of church, particularly for um, asking too many questions or for uh, really standing up for who they believe God has made for their loved ones to be, that, that feel then totally alienated from the scriptures, which have been used as a weapon against them, or from God, who they've been told does not love them. What, uh, what do you think it is between you and God or in your life experience that has, has allowed that knowledge that God loves you and that knowledge that you love God to remain anchored um, in your story, despite all of that uh, failure from institutional church? That's a really great question. And I think, you know, I want to be like careful when I answer this because I don't think that I did something or God did something or something that like makes me special, right? Like, I don't want to be like, oh, because my first thought was like, well, I spent a lot of time reading the Bible. So when people started telling me some bullshit, I was like, nah, but there's plenty of people who spend a lot of time reading the Bible and they don't feel that way. And I think their pain is valid and like there's people who choose to leave the church or, or even Christianity sort of in general. Like, I think that's really valid. Part of me wants to say it was, must've been God's grace. Cause I really don't understand how I'm here still. Um, but then I'm like, but God has grace for those people too. And grace can be found in leaving. So I'm not totally sure, but I do think it, it it's a mix of those things and maybe just like a, a stubbornness or something of like, um, if I leave, then they don't have to deal with me. And if I stay, then they, then they have to deal with me. And that's, that's with the church. But I think the reason with, uh, that I still felt so connected to God is that I had these sort of, you know, mystical or personal or spiritual experiences that I knew were meaningful that were outside of and separate from in many cases, the church Uh, And those narratives really resonated with what I was reading in scripture. And so, although I always very much craved like a community, I knew that like there were like God and I had like a thing going on, whether or not they were cool with it. 
Yeah. And so that the reality of that relationship you had with God couldn't be overwritten by the narratives that the church was trying to, to put on you about it. And it sounds like scripture actually helped anchor you in that. And again, scripture is such a difficult, uh, just a difficult thing for a lot of people who have been the victims of abuse uh, by yeah. institutions using scripture as a weapon. Um, what kind of refuge did you find in the Bible? What were the parts of the scripture where you were like, no, I have read this and you can't tell me that, that it says that, you know, because I, I have found freedom in this text. Yeah. I think this is, again, I was the weirdest kid, but I think it was just some of, even just like the historic, historical narratives, even in like the Hebrew Bible, where it's like, you know, there's God's people. And then there are these empires that harm them and the people are in exile, but God is always present. And, and if faithful people can still ask questions and like cry out to God and be angry and like wish bad things to happen to their enemies and all these things, right? Like, it just really felt like a really human um, reality. Like it just felt like like people I know, right? Like when I read these stories, and I think that's one of the things I a hundred percent understand why so many people are like, I can't even look at the Bible. This was a weapon that harmed me. Like it hurts me too much to even like deal with that. And I think that's very valid, and a lot of people feel that way. For me in order to push back against scripture, like I felt like I needed to know it pretty intimately. And I also just like sort of on a mental level, just found it really fascinating. Like there's all weird stuff in there. There's like some weird wild stuff in the Bible. So it was just like, I was just so like, some people are into Harry Potter. I was like into the Bible. So like, (laughs) you know, I think like I read these stories and some of them were so like wild and otherworldly. I was like, what is going on here? And then some of it, like the characterizations or the things that would happen or especially the emotions were like so human and real and like me and people I know. And so uh, scripture for me has really this close relationship with scripture has allowed me to push back against scripture. Like you can a good friend, you know, Mm. when you have a relationship in your life that you're like, not quite sure about, like, are they going to leave me? Are they still going to love me? It's really hard to have conflict or tension because you're like, not quite sure about the relationship. But when you have a friend or a loved one that you really know and really trust Like it's okay to disagree and push back and you can even maybe have some tension, but you know, you're going to hang in there with each other. And and that's how I feel about scripture is that I feel like I got to know the Bible well enough that I was able to talk back to it. And I was able to say, okay, this part, I reject this part. This is, this is oppressive or time to reframe this or time to reclaim this and totally subvert it and flip it on its head in a way that's liberatory. So, so yeah. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like even while the church was trying to erase you from that experience, to imply that your voice couldn't represent the voice of God, that that we shouldn't have translations that say brothers and sisters, um, or as I, I like to always insert brothers, sisters, and siblings. Right, yeah. right. Um, but it sounds like even though there were institutional pressures trying to systematically erase you from that, seeing that humanity contained within the Bible, um, you were able to identify with it at some level. Um, are there pieces of your identity that you, that you see shaping how you read the Bible in really explicit ways that are different from that dominant narrative you were given? Yes, I think as a woman and queer person, right? I think because of those identities, it makes me look for those, I don't know, those characters that are like on the underside, right? And the characters that are like tricksters or that um, are resilient and survive regardless. And and sometimes, sometimes I relate to those characters, right? And then as I, you know continued to grow and get older, it was important for me to start to see myself on the, on the flip side too. Mm -hmm. So as like a white person in this country to say, okay, like in this story, right in, we'll say like in, in first century Palestine, uh, 
maybe my role is more like a member of the occupying force in a lot of ways, or at least in certain times and in certain like aspects of my identity. And so what does that, what does that mean? And how can I align myself with people who are being oppressed or marginalized or on the underside of that power dynamic? So I think the, the fact that I had experienced these certain levels of oppression or marginalization in some parts of my identity had made me start looking for the power analysis, right? I think a lot of times the dominant narrative doesn't teach us to read for power analysis, and that's on purpose because that's dangerous to the status quo. And when we start doing a power analysis, then we can start to like resist and, and push back. And so the, the experiences that I had sort of, you know, being pushed out, being hurt, put me in a position to start to look for those characters on the underside and to notice that there's differences in power and to notice that God cares about that, that there's structures in scripture that speak to that. And then later to start to continue to bring that power analysis to the parts of my life where I am in the role of an oppressor, right. In a white supremacist society as a white person. And, um, I think a lot of the, the dominant narrative around scripture really tries to hyper-spiritualize and decontextualize scripture, right? Everything is about heaven and your spirit. And it's not about here and now and hungry bellies and blood and guts and tears and like feet on the ground and real human beings. And yet, like, that's what the stories are about. They're about feedings and healings and things that are really corporal and fleshy and, and, and bodily. And they're about people in a particular time in a particular place with like governments and power structures and societal norms. And so when we start to read for those things, we can notice them in our own culture and many of the cultural things have changed, but the, the power hasn't changed the way power operates hasn't changed. And so it can really be used, you know, to sort of bolster us if, and when we're in the position of being a marginalized person and also some, for some like self crit, right? Like when we're in the position of the oppressor, it can be a good accountability check to be like, how am I reenacting this? How am I a religious leader propping up the empire right now? Like many of the religious leaders uh, throughout scripture that are like the, the bad guys, right? Like the bad ones. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I know we're going to get into some specific scripture later, but are there any particular stories or characters uh, or themes that come to mind that um, that you feel like really changed for you when you started approaching it with this power analysis? Yes. Not to be cheesy, but Jesus. So like, um, <laughs> you know, like, did you grow up in this space where it was like the right answer at Sunday school is always Jesus. So that's why I kind of feel funny saying mm -hmm. that. But I think, um, a few things, right? There's a sort of stuff about, you know, very like Dr. James Cone, the cross and the lynching tree about the act of state violence and empire and occupation and the way that empire criminalizes groups of people and uh, puts down uprisings by public uh, psychological terrorism through lynchings and, and crucifixions. Like there's that, right? Like when I read that, when I learned about that, <clears throat> when I learned that like, in Rome, there's a lot of different ways to be killed and that crucifixion was reserved for non-citizens and particularly for rabble rousers and insurrectionists. I was like, whoa, that puts Jesus in a different light for sure, right? Um, but also like on the human level, again, I'm so like sentimental about scripture because these people feel very real to me because I know people like this, right? When I read mm -hmm. the story of, of what I see as Jesus's radicalization, I'm like, wow, I, I, I see this in the community organizers and people that I know, like John the Baptist, Jesus is like mentor and cousin baptizing him, initiating him into a movement of renewal. That's about, you know, social and spiritual revival. And then Jesus, you know, comes back from being in the desert and John is arrested. And Jesus is like, well, fuck, I guess it's time to, we're doing this then, right? Like the tension increases, like my beloved comrade, my mentor, I see what they did to him. They targeted him, they arrested him. And then later they kill him. And as Jesus's ministry starts amping up and he starts traveling more and more towards Jerusalem, we can feel this tension building and we can feel all these choices that are made. It's not like he passively just like 
gets killed or something. He's like, yeah. nope, I see what they do for revolutionaries. I see what they do to revolutionaries here. I see what they do to, to people have already done to my comrades, to people in this movement. And like, here we go. Like, you can tell that Fox Herod that I'm not afraid of him, you know? And so just hearing that and seeing that and then, you know, learning more about history, like thinking of Judas as the infighting in a movement that gets co-opted by empire. And then there's informants, right? And I, it makes me think so much of the counterintelligence programs in the United States and even in our movements Absolutely. today. And so all of those things and those layers not only helped point me to like these social structures, but also like, I know community organizers who are so, who love the people so much and they're so tired that they try to just go nap on the boat, you know, but then the work yeah. is always there, right? Like these are real people and, and their personalities are so real. And yeah, so there's so many things that change. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's great to be able to enter into the story from different angles and to bring real life into it or other types of art. I mean, like it makes me, uh, laugh at myself to admit this, but like a hugely, uh, paradigm shifting experience for me around the scriptures and particularly around the gospels was reading or not reading, watching Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, I'm obsessed with um, Jesus Christ Superstar. Yes. Okay. Cool. I love, and like, <laughs> If anybody hasn't hasn't checked it out, it is a '70s rock musical depiction where the the protagonist slash antihero is Judas, and so you see a lot of it from Judas's perspective. And I think that, yeah. you know, part of it humanized Judas for me, uh, in in a way that made things less hyper spiritual and less. Um, kind of cut and dry around like this was just a terrifying thing to be a part of and they were up yeah. against so much um and 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 Judas fundamentally in that in that story succumbs to the pressures of empire and the fear of uh you know settling for partial liberation because full liberation seems like it's just going to get you killed and right. and that was really a powerful thing to me and I'd love I've never really thought of Ju like Judas and, and the conspiring sort of middle management of the establishment as like Cointelpro. I love that, um, that, uh, that comparison you're raising. And I think that when we, when we bring real history and real politics into conversation with the scriptures, we see so much more there. Um, and, and you're right that the, the hyper spiritualization that removes context from it, it, it doesn't serve doesn't serve Jesus. It doesn't serve the people. It doesn't serve the narrative of liberation. It serves the powers and structures that exist. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's actually a pretty big theme in your book, isn't it? Yeah. Um, of that, that shift from engaging with the dominant narrative to actually seeing yourself in context and learning what that means for the radicalization of your faith into something so much more holy. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. It reminds me this sort of, uh, yeah, the sort of the rejection of the hyper-spiritualization of scripture is, is one of the major charges in the book towards, towards the church when we're, the, the book is written primarily for church people, although there's non-church people who reviewed it and enjoyed it, um, as well, which is very, like, I'm honored by that. But, um, one of the major charges to the church is like, so let's stop doing that, right? Like, let's stop doing this hyper-spiritualization that really, freezes us in our under our able ability to understand how these same things are playing out in our own lives. I think about how many white Christians sort of think of, I don't know, maybe evangelism or, uh, this, this is definitely more of like an evangelical point of view, but like, it's about saving souls, right? Like it's about, it's about saving souls from the, the fires of hell. <laughs> and uh, when I look at Jesus's ministry, I notice a few things. And one of the things that I notice is that most of the time, the first thing he does for people is satisfy their physical needs, right? Hunger, healings. These are about like physical things. They're not sort of floaty up in the air spiritual stuff. And, and in fact, the physical is spiritual, like our, our spiritual health and, and our physical health and our emotional health and all of those things are so connected. And so I think again, to, for example, uh, the black Panther party, right? Black Panther party is another movement for liberation. 
and they had ideal ideas. They had sort of, you know, philosophies and goals. And one of the main things that they did was provide for people's physical needs through the people's clinics, through the free breakfast program. And the idea was this idea that they called survival pending revolution. So is this idea not of top-down charity where we help people so then they sort of see Jesus and get saved and go to heaven or something, but this idea that there's a revolution coming of love and liberation and people have to survive to be able to fight in it. If the revolution comes and everyone's too hungry to participate, what revolution is that? And so I see that with Jesus, right? There's this, there is some existential stuff, right? But the existential stuff is about you know, liberation, which involves whole people and it involves bodies. Yeah, I I love that. And it makes me think of like the nap ministry. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know the nap ministry out of Atlanta, but um, yeah, they similarly a framework that says like, I don't know, they, they're always posting beautiful, brilliant things on social media. And one of them recently was something to the effect of like, basically, it is in capitalism or the empire or the dominant forces self-interest that we are exhausted all the time, that we are too exhausted yeah. to, On um, to have a, yeah, to have a proper analysis and, and, you know, to say, oh yes, Jesus healed people and fed people can, can be made radical or not radical, depending on where you take that. Right. And if you take yeah. it as the end right? Oh, well, our, our purpose here is mercy ministries. The poor will always be with us. And we're just trying to get into heaven. Then like that is, that is a complete deflating of this gospel. And if you take it in the other direction that says, actually like people's bodies need to be nourished. People in context need to be held and supported. We all have, um, we all have capacities to build and create a different kind of kingdom if only we weren't so under-resourced. So let's get resources to people so that we can dream and build a liberated future in the name of Jesus Christ. Like, that's a very different type of gospel. Um, And I I think about that with even things like mutual aid versus food pantries. um, That, like, the church has always had permission to feed the hungry, but only if we're doing so in a very particular kind of way and that that's the end and we don't go any further. Um, yeah. You know, here in Milwaukee, we started a, it's called the depot, but it's a supply drop and distribution center um, to supply protests. And so we're mm-hmm. feeding people who are in the streets in conflict with, um, you know, state violence and um, narratives of uh, oppression and that's when we get called terrorists. And that's when people are starting to like threaten our building and stuff. And it's like, we're doing the same stuff the church has always been doing, but with a much different and broader analysis. And so I think that, you know, there's so much freedom when we can approach things like the tradition or the scriptures and say, Hey, there are pieces of this that the church has always gotten right. And that's like step one of 50 and step 50 is like, you know, fully automated space communism (laughs) and like, we're, but you know, so like, let's, let's move a little bit further. Um, but the big question for me are like how I, the analysis that I use for myself, the ministries I'm a part of, uh, which again is a very aspirational thing I'm about to say, right. Um, aspirational is maybe a weird word because that sounds hopeful, but, um, and it's kind of complicated. I'm just going to say what I was going to say, but, um, a, a question I ask myself to be like, is this a sort of top-down charity model that reinforces empire or is this mutual aid for the sake of the revolution? The question I ask myself is, is the state threatened by what I'm doing? You know, Mm, like lots of people were feeding people in Jesus's time. Lots of people were healing people and casting out demons. Lots of people were teaching people. That wasn't really a big deal. The big deal was that, for example, demons and stuff, And people were saying, this is the son of God, which is what you normally called Caesar. And so it's like, it's not these, you know, the, the feeding and the healing was revolutionary so that people could be well enough to demand their liberation and to be, live lives as whole people, abundant life. But the threat to the state was, was what, what Jesus was doing in opposition to empire, right? Nobody no 
Nobody in the state is mad at a state-sanctioned food pantry that fills out all the right forms. And those food pantries might still do some pretty, like, cool, you know, liberatory things. Or, um, you know, the Holy Spirit's, like, sneaky and can can work around some of this stuff, right? So I'm not trying to be like, screw your food pantries. Sometimes these food pantries still end up being, like, revolutionary AF. But we should ask ourselves... Why is the state not mad? <laughs> Why is the state mm. not mad at my food pantry, right? And what you're talking about is the state got mad, right? You were doing something that was yeah. functionally very similar in many ways to state-run, state-funded, you know, funded, at least partially in many cases, food pantries. But what you were doing was with this analysis that threatened the state. And so... They, you know, they couldn't say, well, we don't want people to be free, so please stop feeding them. But what they could say is like, oh, you are supporting terrorists. You're bad. You are, you know, giving terrorists food or you are acting like terrorists or whatever. people really get up in arms and have some of those strong reactions when you start using the term abolition, um, especially in relationship to police and prisons. And so I know I made a joke before about fully automated space communism uh, as like step 50 or whatever, um, you know, because we don't really know where this is headed. But along the way, um, a lot of activists have really identified that abolishing the police and abolishing the prison system are going to be necessary towards liberation. And that seems to terrify the state. Um, and, and a lot of times it's, it's bodies of people who have been acclimated to state dominance and including the church that really push back and do the state's job for it in some ways, right? Do the kind of freak out. We can't possibly dream of that kind of liberation, Therefore, we have to really clamp down and tell you in the streets, like, no, stop saying that out loud. Um, That's terrifying. So how did you get to that point of, you know, starting, you you identify in in the subtitle of your book, From White Moderate to Abolitionist, how did you move from that kind of white moderate space to saying, actually, I'm looking further down the line here and what Jesus was doing, and part of the necessary process towards the kingdom is abolishing these systems how did you get there I think that you know of course because of my social location and and socialization I grew up thinking police are our friends police are there to help I didn't realize that wasn't true for everyone as I grew up and I started to be exposed to more people and reading more books and having more you know broadened experiences I started to learn oh This isn't true for all people, but I still held in my head uh, that the system was pretty much fine, but it needed some reform, right? Like, wow, like when I got to, you know, Ferguson in 2014 and the uprising, my thought was, you know, the system is definitely systemically racist, but it's mostly, you know, because people don't know better. And if we just educate people, like if we educate police officers, then they'll stop acting out of bias and like things will be better. And I think a lot of people feel that way. I think there's uh, it's a very, actually like a very liberal point of view, right? Like the system is mostly good. There's some bad actors. We got to get rid of them. Yes. There's some systemic stuff with some tweaks. We can make it better. And what I started to see for myself and what I started to listen to for once from people who are most directly affected is that the system cannot be reformed because the carceral system is not broken. It's not like there's a glitch in the system. The system is working exactly how it's intended. The system is built this way. And so we can't 
just tweak a couple little things in a machine that was built in the beginning to be a white supremacist machine that protected corporate interests. There's no redeeming that. And any attempts to redeem it often cases historically have made things worse. So when I started to learn about, when I first heard we should have opposed police reforms, I almost like pooped my little white liberal pants because I was like, what? Body cameras will fix everything if people could just see mm. what was happening, right? And I think, yeah. you know, there's a, a nugget of truth there, right? When people do start to see more about what's happening, people are getting radicalized. And they aren't typically from body cameras. They're from brave yeah. teenage girls on the side of the street, right? They're from folks with their cell phones. When I learned more about how surveillance has been used, for example, to disrupt liberation movements, when I saw for myself in Ferguson, the way that when police had cameras, they were using it on us, not each other. Those cameras, yeah. those videos are not holding them accountable. They're used to criminalize us and they're targeting activists and freedom fighters. I was like, oh yeah, we give the police more money for these mm -hmm. new technologies or this more training. We give them more money. That means we increase their budget. That means we increase their power, increase their reach, which means mm -hmm. we're, we're increasing the harm to people. And we're deflating budgets from things that actually help reduce crime and reduce harm, like education, like social services. And we actually are, we're, we're making things worse because since the system was not, is not in a glitch, right? It's not, it's not fixing a problem. It's built this way. The system will continue to use these new technologies, these new trainings, just to fortify and, and grow itself. So uh, that was huge for me to see that, to, to see the ways that, uh, you know, surveillance and to learn historically the way that surveillance had interrupted movements, the way that reforms have failed for the, you know, the past couple hundred years we've been working on reforms in the, in the quote unquote criminal justice system and these reforms have failed and we have only become more and more militarized and more and more dangerous. That coupled with, my own, so that sort of knowledge, then coupled with my own experiences of choking on the tear gas, of mothering a black child, of watching the way that the black comrade next to me was like beaten and charged, overcharged, while I was given like a little ticket for, you know, disturbing the peace, standing right next to them. Seeing that made me really believe for the first time, I think, in a real way that that we had to we we had to do better and we had to start from scratch and build something with pure intentions with good intentions that are really about ending harm and once i believed that i could look back throughout history and back throughout our sacred scriptures and our sacred tradition and i could see that this isn't a new idea right there's been yeah. people in its current iteration there's been people working on abolition for decades just because it's new to me doesn't mean that it's new. It means I'm new to the party. I should sit down and listen. But mm -hmm. even outside of like this sort of current era that we're in, that's decades of work uh, by architects of abolition, mostly black women, people have been talking about abolition since like the earliest parts of scripture. When people are envisioning the coming reign of God, they're envisioning a world where the captives are free, where there's release for the prisoners. Like that is consistent throughout scripture. Anytime that the prophets, anytime that our leaders, anytime, you know, we're imagining like, what would this world be like? What would the world be like when the reign of God comes in all of its fullness? It's, it's naming those things. That's a part of it. And we like to, again, hyper-spiritualize and pretend that that's like a, I don't know, captivity is like captivity to sin or something, right? Like it's a metaphor. Mm -hmm. That's a metaphor. That's a really convenient metaphor. You know, queer people going to hell is literal, <laughs> but uh <laughs> But release to the captives is a very convenient metaphor. Uh, but in scripture, the people from the stories, you can tell they didn't think of that as, as metaphorical. They were very serious. Well, let's get into that because the scripture that you wanted to kind of unpack today um, right. is it touches directly on that. You wanted to talk about Luke 4, right? Yes. Um, do you want to just sort of introduce us to that uh, that scripture? Yes. So what has happened so far? Jesus is born. <laughs> Jesus was born uh, and then, you know, is initiated into this movement by John the Baptist, goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by 
the devil who, who tempts him with, you know, promises of power or security or other things that many of us, uh, even in liberation movements are, are challenged by, but then, um, he goes and begins his ministry, right? Like he goes back to Galilee and he starts to begin his ministry and he goes to Nazareth where he had kind of grown up and he goes into, uh, you know, his place of worship and he stands up to read and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And so this is a good example of how like even, you know, this thing that Jesus is about to say is not even an, an idea necessarily original to Jesus, the, the human person of Jesus. It's, it's something that's present all throughout scripture. He's actually really drawing upon his own tradition. He's relying on his own spiritual ancestors. And he unrolls the scroll and he says, he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he, you know, goes and sits down and is like, yeah, that's me though. Like I'm that I'm going to do that. The the actual words in Luke are today, the scripture has been fulfilled uh, in your hearing and people freaked out, right? Like when, when he said that, like the people understood that he was serious and they started freaking out to the, to the point that they, you know, tried to kill him and tried to throw him off a cliff. So they took what he said seriously, like Jesus saying this statement from Isaiah, clearly the people there believed that that statement in Isaiah was like really about release to captives, really about healing people, really about, you know, good news for the poor. And then when Jesus said, yeah, Um, and I'm here to do that, that was such a threat that people, you know, wanted to kill him. So it says, I'll, I'll read this, uh, this, uh, this verse 28 and 29. When the people heard this all in the place of worship were filled with rage and they got up and drove him out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill, which their town was built so that they might hurl him off a cliff, but he passed through the midst of them and on his way. And then he, just, he does some more healings and and, uh, and some casting out of demons and stuff after that. So he gets right to work, right? He kind of, he borrows upon his own sacred tradition, his own sacred text, the prophets, his ancestors. And he says, here's what I'm about. I'm about, you know, proclaiming release to the captives. And people took it seriously enough to try to kill him. And he took it seriously enough to get right to work and began to do these healings and uh exorcisms and all these other things that we read about him doing in scripture. Yeah. And that moment where he just sort of disappears through the crowd. I love that because it's so like, you know, yeah, brush the dirt off your shoulders. And, and like you said, work, like, uh, I think that there are a lot of folks who would want to stay in that town and try and argue with those folks about no, really get on board, get on board. Um, and Jesus doesn't actually waste any time with that. He says, I'm going to tell you the Mm -hmm. truth and I see that you don't like it and that you are pushing back really hard. And instead of just like hunkering down here and trying to convince you that this vision is worth pursuing, I'm going to go pursue that vision. And I really, I'm going to keep creating the conditions for you to come with me, but like, I'm not going to stop doing the work just because you can't get uh, ideologically on board yet. Um, right. and I, I, I just, I feel like we have yeah, a lot people, to learn from that in the movement. <laughs> oh my gosh. People like people might have said to him, like, you know, Jesus, like, I, I get what you're saying about healing people and, 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 you know, helping prisoners and stuff, but the slogan you use, it's just so inflammatory. You know, when you, when you say I'm about good news for the poor and you say, proclaim release to the captives and you say oppressed go free like you know it's just it's just so inflammatory maybe you could tone it down like i can just picture shouldn't it be good news for everyone jesus right why good news to the poor yeah yeah why get so particular why or like shouldn't it be you know instead of similarly you know today i hear a lot about like well, defund the police. That's so uh, inflammatory. And I'm like, girl, wait till you hear about abolition. But okay. But, um, you know, they're like, defund the police. It's just, it's so inflammatory. Maybe it should be a slogan that's like, redistribute and reallocate resources to social services. Cause that's less inflammatory, you know, and it's usually white people, 
who say this, right? It's white people who say this typically. Uh, and it's just, it's just very funny because it's like, they're like, it's ineffective. I'm like, so ineffective that we're all talking about it. <laughs> like so ineffective that it's like beginning to happen. Like, again, maybe it's a new idea to you and it's shocking to you. Perhaps you're just new to this idea. Maybe the idea is not new. Maybe you're new. Maybe listen to the people on the forefront of this movement, the architects of abolition and the people who have been working on this and, and really bear the brunt of this and, and uh, accept their direction. And they're saying, defund the police, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, and the the words that Jesus has in this passage are really radical. I like the the year of the Lord's favor. That's one that that I love that we often lose the context for. Like that's the jubilee. That's a massive uh, economic sh- like shift of of uh, destroying debt. If we were to yeah. enact the actual year year of the Lord's favor, is the phrase. That is a real policy change that Jesus is suggesting um, that we erase all debts. Like capitalism as we know it would collapse under that. Um, And it's a, it's a really profound idea. It's not just, it's not just a nice thing to say on Sunday mornings. Um, And so Mm -hmm. to say like, no, 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 we're actually going to start doing this. I totally understand why people would be completely threatened by that. And yet we read it in this, you know, like you said, this hyper-spiritualized way. I mean, how have you heard this passage interpreted in churches? Uh, Mm -hmm. Has it been this radical full-fledged thing that would drive people to this kind of reaction or, or have you heard it characterized in these hyper-spiritual ways as well? I, you know, I've heard it depending where I am. I've heard both, right? Like I have been fortunate to be around people who are like, yeah, like Jesus is preaching a complete restructuring of society. Jesus is preaching liberation and that's why he was a threat. And then I've also been around people who have read this and somehow what they get from it is, um, Jesus is proclaiming to be the son of God and, um, that's has no implications for like our, our (laughs) daily physical life here on earth. Like there's this, you know, this idea of, uh, they really emphasize today. The scripture has been fulfilled in your healing or in your hearing today. The scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I've heard it that emphasized over like what the scripture is, right? Like, Oh, the scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. They're mad because Jesus is saying he's the Messiah. No, they're not, they're not mad because scripture generally is being fulfilled generally because there was a Messiah prophesied and then Jesus is the Messiah. Like nobody's mad about that. Like, why would that make people that nobody cares? You know, like what they're mad about is that this particular scripture today, this particular scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, like this particular scripture about good news to the poor and release to the captives, like an end to oppression is being fulfilled. That's what I'm about. Like, that's the, that's the, that's the, the thing that freaks people out. Right. So it's, again, yeah. I, I have heard this for spiritualization, but it just, if you look at their text, it just doesn't make sense. At least I don't think it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think there's also like another nugget in here for us who are committed to the movement and committed to liberation. Um, because there, there's another layer of nuance here about gatekeeping. Because um, mm-hmm. there's a little kind of interjection here where Jesus is like, I know you guys are going to say, like, you know, doctor, cure yourself. Um, start with you, whatever. And then he says, but, but the truth is there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah. Um, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow uh, in, in Sidon. Mm-hmm. And like that, those are, these are like deep cuts for those of us who are like, you know, not from first century Palestine. Um, sure. but, but this idea that like Jesus was also saying, Hey, it, this is not just for you gathered here. This is for folks who are considered outside of, mm-hmm. of Israel. This is like for everyone. This is beyond even your own experience of, oppression, but like for all the poor, for all the captives and God might not start with you. Um, and so there's, I feel like, you know, also this level of like, 
oh, only I get to be free. And you're suggesting that there is freedom for everyone, including people that I might not like, that I might identify against, that are not part of my plan for my own liberation. And that that's that's really infuriating and terrifying to people too. And so I think even for us committed to liberation, there's this, there's this invitation, this like very painful invitation, not to gatekeep liberation, but to say, no one is free until we're all free is like embedded in this too. Yeah. I think too, it also, uh, you know, the, the thing that they said about like, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, don't we know this kid? Didn't this kid grow up, (laughs) grow up here? I think there's also, uh, something, interesting or or I can relate to the movement from that piece too, where they're kind of being like, who do you think you are? Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point they're not totally mad yet. Right. Cause they, Jesus hasn't said, yeah, also it's not just going to be y'all. It's going to be everybody, you know, but they're, they're kind of like perplexed, right? Like they're like, wait a minute, who is this guy? Why does he think he can say these things? The scripture of our ancestors be fulfilled in him. What? You know? Um, and they're like, yeah, who do you, who do you think you are? And I think sometimes uh, we do this in our, in our modern liberation movements where we think there is going to be this like singular savior figure that's going to show up in a particular way, you know? Mm. And, um, and so what, we do to ourselves and what the empire does is sort of discredit movements by discrediting human leaders and being like, Oh, well, so-and-so was no angel or so-and-so had this history or so-and-so, you know, was a criminal or, you know, who does this person think they are? They should pull up their pants and speak proper English or whatever. Right. Like there's this Mm -hmm. kind of discrediting of like you, you're the spokesperson for liberation you're going to lead this movement. And we know in our, our sort of current movement that we have a decentralized movement where there's, there's many different leaders, which is strategic as well as, you know, inherently liberatory. But I think there's, there's this part of us still very much informed by, by empire that is looking around and seeking like a singular person to swoop in and like fix things. And then that singular person has to be like perfect. And we pin all their, our hopes on them and has to like perform the way we want them to. And like, that's, that's, also like a pitfall, right? Like that's not real. Uh, Jesus maybe is in ways like that, but even him, like they were calling his credentials into even him. They were like, who's this kid from this backwater town? We know about you. We know your dad. Shut up. You know, like if Jesus can't even pull this off this, yeah, we should definitely take the learning from that, that that shouldn't be how we're trying to to seek full liberation is to have some sort of miraculous person drop from the clouds. Cause even Jesus had to grow up in, in Nazareth and had to come from somewhere. Yeah. 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 With like a weird family story. Like, you know, like we're, Mm -hmm. you know, where was the sort of like, again, it's like, Oh, where I blame the parents. Where were the, where were their, where was their father or whatever? You know, it's like the same sort of like, wait, isn't this Joseph's son? Like this is Okay. Running off to the temple, running away from home at 12, disrespecting his parents. Vagrant, yes. Yeah. So (laughs) if Jesus can't even win that game, we should definitely stop playing it. Right. Um, All right. Well, I love this so much. And and this scripture really is a favorite. And I I hope it does inform uh, our, our understanding of the gospel not only just as a core intention of like, this is what Jesus is here to do, but also as just a constant reminder that you're right. Like we should be taking this literally. And, and if the gospel, if our understanding of the gospel isn't threatening to people, isn't causing people embedded in the status quo to freak out a little bit, then probably right. we're, we're hyper-spiritualizing or we're not taking something very, very seriously. Um, yeah. I'd love to just close, uh, with a couple of our classic questions here. Um, so first of all, is, is there anything in the Bible that you think actually just gets too much attention, too much airtime? You're like, I'm over mm-hmm. it. Maybe we could like pull back on this part. Yeah. I mean, probably everybody says this one, but I'm just like the like six clobber passages, right? Like the sort of like mm-hmm. the, the passages that are used to like harm LGBTQIA plus people. And I don't even mean like, hey, conservative Christians, get over it. It's only like a tiny part of the Bible and you're misunderstanding. I mean, even like in many ways, like for those of us who are LGBTQIA plus, like we can stop defending ourselves against these like silly six verses that don't mean that yeah. thing. Even if they did literally, who cares? 
literally who cares because like we also believe different things about like the shape of the earth now so like let's move on this is not the point you know so I think that's a thing I feel like we just spend so much energy on those six clobber passages and I wish we would stop casting like pearls before swine right like we're just like trying so hard to prove that we belong to prove that we're okay trying to convince people to to love us and I wish we would be like cool time to get to work and then go you know cast out demons in the next chapter yeah. like like Jesus does here. Quietly disappear from that crowd and move on with yeah. the work of the gospel. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. And uh, so then is there something, anything in the Bible that you wish would get more attention and airtime that you're like, this is a lost gem? So many things. Today I'm going to say the book of Judges. I think there's like so many wild stories in there and it's just wild. Like, it's just like, there's so many good stories um, in the book of judges and the characters are so interesting. And, and I, a lot of them are like left out of the lectionary. So those of us in churches who primarily, you know, use the revised common lectionary, like often don't hear any of these stories. And I just, there's some really cool, maybe cool is not always the word for all of these stories, but there's some powerful or like interesting things about like gender and identity and power and resistance and stuff, even in those stories. And so I think, um, judges is the example I'll give, but I think it's, it's really some of those like little forgotten stories in general can be really, uh, can really, really be powerful and, and just interesting, right? It's like the hook to get you in of like, wow, this is a wild library of books here. There is Mm -hmm. a wild story here about somebody nailing somebody else's head to the floor that's bananas you know like that's <laughs> wild time to keep reading I guess you know so much stuff in there that I think most of us don't have any idea about but it is yeah. it is interesting to say the least the other well, thing I'd say is maybe geography oh sorry and the other thing I'd say no, is maybe geography like so many times these stories uh they're really rooted in the geography of a place, right? Like in the story, it just mentions, and he went to this place or they went to this place or they did this thing at this place. But it's like knowing the geography of the place itself actually like makes the story really different or is really tied to the story. Um, and maybe even the, the name of the geography or of the town or whatever is loaded with meaning. So for example, in the book of Ruth, when you know Ruth and Naomi and their family go to Moab because there was no food in Bethlehem, that's wild because Bethlehem is the house of bread and Moab. If you've been there, it's like modern day, you know, Jordan, it is like, you know, like the movie Aladdin where there's just like sand dunes and it's just like sand everywhere. Right. Mm. It's like the famine was so bad in Israel that like the house of bread, the famine was so bad in the place of abundance and greenery and the house of bread that they went to the desert to look for food because that's how scarce it was. Like that blew my mind the first time I knew that. And the only time I would know that is, you know, learning about the geography and and the naming a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many dense layers of meaning and, and yeah, and we do have the freedom to unpack that and unpack that with different lenses. And I really appreciate you being with us today to unpack some of this uh, from your own lenses. Thanks for listening to this episode of Jonah and the Peacock. We hope you enjoyed it. This show is presented by The Liberation Project and produced by Wesley's Revival.